Yes. Well, children, I, I wonder if this is familiar to you. Maybe uh, you can remember one day when your daddy came home from work and was very tired from, from working. He came home into the living room and greeted you with a great big hug and said, it's so good to see you. And your daddy came home and he, he went to his favorite chair in the living room and he sat down. And that tells you something, doesn't it? That, that tells you that when your father comes home at the end of the day and, and sits down to enjoy some time with you, his, his family, that the work is completed, that now is the time to spend time with people he loves and to put aside the responsibilities and the uh, jobs that he was doing during that time. And it's an interesting thing. In the Apostles' Creed, which is a summary of, of what all Christians believe, we say that Jesus sat down. We confess in every Lord's Day at the evening service, I believe that Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there is something that is a glorious mystery that we need to understand. Why is it that Jesus, after he died on the cross and rose again from the grave and, and went into heaven, why was it that he sat down? What does it mean that he sat down at the right hand of God? Well, I think that's it's not only something that, that we need to um, learn as, as younger ones, but also as older ones. Each one of us, if we would have eyes to see the glorious reality of the, of the risen and ascended Jesus Christ, seated in majesty, we can find great encouragement for our lives and for our relationship with him. With that, I'd like to consider this theme, Christ seated at God's right hand. Christ seated at God's right hand. And we'll consider first his position, second his title, and third his gifts. Well, it's a bit of a, of a strange thing to think about, isn't it? The right hand of God. What could that possibly mean? We know, don't we, that God is not someone like a, with a body like ourselves. He, he doesn't have physical feet or hands or arms or a face. He is a spirit, infinite and eternal, unchanging in his glorious holiness and wisdom and power. He is far greater than we could possibly imagine. He isn't constrained with a physical body like ourselves. And yet, sometimes the Bible speaks about this, doesn't it? The right hand of God. And 
If we were to survey some of these parts that speak about this, we'd have to say that it speaks in, in the first place about a place of God's favor and blessing. For example, in Psalm 16, uh, verses 10 and 11, David writes these words. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell or in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so, Here, David, he's he's talking about what it is for him to look ahead to heaven, to that time in which he will know the blessings and the favor of God. And he speaks about that, that place of God's presence with his special blessing and favor as God's right hand. And that's certainly one of the pictures you have, but you also have have this as well. In the Bible, it speaks about the right hand of God as especially talking about his power. Because we know that uh, for most people, at least uh, the majority, we have our right hand as, as the hand that is, has greater strength, has, has greater accuracy when we set ourselves to do something. And so when God is at work in the world and and doing something of of special importance, it will speak about his right hand as displaying his power and his activity. And so, for example, you think about in uh, Exodus chapter 15, when Moses was singing his glorious song in the aftermath of the Lord splitting the Red Sea so that the children of Israel could walk through and the, uh, and the water rising up as two great walls. And then once they were in safety, the, uh, the soldiers of Egypt, they walked through those walls and they came crashing down, destroying the enemy. And Moses, in Exodus 15, verse 6, says this, Thy right hand, O Lord, is become glorious in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemy. And these two things, these two realities of the special favor and blessing of God, as well as the power and might of God, they come together in what the Bible refers to as Christ's place at the right hand of God. And that is what our catechism speaks of, where it says, Why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of God? Because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. And so you have this very language of Jesus seated at the right hand of God throughout the scriptures, and especially in Ephesians chapter 1, where it speaks of God the Father, 
And it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And we're talking here, aren't we, about a very important part of the Lord Jesus' work in the salvation of his people. It's not merely that he ascended away from this world, but he entered into a particular station and position and, and place of great, uh, great blessing from the Lord as well as great power and authority. You'd wonder, wouldn't you, if you were in heaven on that great day when the Lord Jesus ascended out of the view of his disciples and a cloud received him out of their sight, what would it have been like to see that from the position of the angels and and the souls of just men made perfect? Well, in fact, we don't have to completely speculate. We have in the passage of which we've read, a a very special vision that Daniel was given that shows exactly what this would have looked like. So in Daniel chapter 7, which we read, we have have all these uh, frightening images. Daniel was witnessing the history of the world pictured in these very fearful beasts or animals. And you have uh, in the first beast of, of the lion, the kingdom or the empire of Babylon. In the second, you have uh, Greece pictured as a four-headed leopard. And you have the Medo-Persian empire pictured as a ferocious uh, bear. And the fourth beast of the Roman empire pictured as this terrible ferocious animal with ten horns that is more ghastly and, and horrifying than any animal. And there in the midst of them stands God. God, it says in verse 9, pictured as an ancient man. Verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and his hair and the hair of his head like the pure wool his throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire so in this vision you see uh, an ancient man his his head white with many years and he's enthroned in great majesty it goes on to talk about the thousands of ten thousands of angels and ministering unto him. He's sitting in judgment over this world in rebellion. And there, in that context, Daniel sees such a glorious sight. In verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory 
and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And so here you have the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus himself, one who is true man, born of the Virgin Mary, and yet united as he is to divinity. A divine person, the Son of God, who in his human nature, in his humanity, has accomplished a perfect salvation for his people, vanquished the devil, atoned for sin, died on the cross for his people, and risen from the grave in great power and might. He is received as the champion of heaven. He is received into the presence of these angels, into the presence of the Ancient of Days, welcomed into this new place of great blessing, honor, power, and authority. And where Jesus Christ and his sitting at the right hand of God would feature in this prophecy, which is summarizing the whole shape and movement of world history as the very focal point and apex of all things, can there be any one of us who would treat this as a secondary thing? Must it not be that for you and for me, Jesus Christ is the one that all of our lives point to? Isn't it the case that Whatever else we may be thinking about, whatever else may be occupying our time and attention, if we would but look up, look up at this glorious vision of the conquering Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, this one who has been given from the hand of his Father all authority in heaven and on earth, this one who rules over all the nations with a rod of iron. If we, by faith, would behold Jesus Christ in this glory, would we not come to see that this is the very reason for living? If God would say that this is the most important thing in history, is it not also the most important thing in your life as well, believer? If he is a king, must he not also be our king? Must we not cast down before him every area of our life, submitting unto his lordship, saying that whatever we have in our hands, whatever we have in our lives, whatever we may be, we belong unto him. It's a glorious position that we see reflected here in Christ seating at the right hand of God. But I'd also like to make note from our catechism about the special title which he has. Where you notice that it says in question 50, why is it added and, and sitteth at the right hand of God? Answer, because Christ is ascended into heaven 
for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. Now it's especially here that the Catechism speaks about this very important title of Christ as the head of the church. And it's not only the Catechism, but the Scriptures as well that that really draw our attention to this, that when we think about Christ ascended and seated at the right hand of God, we ought also to think about him doing so as the head of the church. And so, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, which we've already read from, but now looking at verse 22, where it says right after speaking of his being seated in the heavenly places and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so we maybe would be familiar with distinguishing uh, between the parts of a human being. You have your head, which is the command center, the the point of, of a person that is the most prominent, the most visible, the most personable, and then you have the the body, that which transports the head around, that which obeys the commands of the head. And there's a unity, isn't there? You look at a person and you see the head and the body is intimately connected. They're be a hideous thing to contemplate the removal of the head from the body. And the fact that this would be used of Christ, that he is the head of the church, has such important significance for us practically. You know, throughout the history of the church, there have have been those who have said that Christ cannot be regarded as the only head of the church. So, for example, you would think of um, the, the Pope of Rome. He would say that while Christ might be called the spiritual head of the church, it is rather himself that is the, the temporal head of the church. So the Pope of Rome has the right to tell the members of the church how it is they are to live, how it is that they are to worship God, what it is that they are to do. And throughout the history of the church, you've, you've had the system of Roman Catholicism persecuting the people of God, perhaps not so much today, but we do say that many thousands of faithful Christians have given their lives for the principle that it is not the Pope that is the head of the church, but only Christ. Indeed, Not a few of our fathers would look at that prophecy of the fourth beast of Rome and the the little horn coming out of it. As you see in verse 8 of um, Daniel 7 and found a specific reference to the papacy which did indeed assume a great political power over the nations of Europe and, and over the church itself. But whether or not that is true, we, we do have to face this fact that if it's not maybe not the Pope that would claim to have the ownership of the church and the right to command the members of the church, but that also today there are attacks upon 
the headship of Christ. There are those who would say it's not Christ who deserves the supreme honor to command his people in their worship and in their lives. No, this must give way to other authorities and other powers. And so you'd think of parts of the world like China where indeed it is forbidden to worship the Lord apart from one of the state-approved assemblies. And closer to home, we know that there are churches even in our own federation who were threatened by ministers of government and those who were appointed for the health of the nation simply because that they were exercising their biblical prerogatives in calling the people of God to worship according to Christ's commands. And the reality is, congregation, that there is only one head of the church. And wherever we would have that primary loyalty to Christ alone, to command his worship, to govern our lives, to be the very focal point of our allegiance, we must be willing to pay a cost for them. If you would think about this title of Christ as the glorified head of the church, it's really a doorway into the real reality of what the church is. The church is not just a collection of people who enjoy one another's company. It's not like a club or a society or a business or an um, or an inessential service, or an essential service. It is a spiritual reality. Christ has united himself by his spirit with his body. And all believers so united to him by a living faith, they have their life out of him. And you could no more contemplate a church that did not yield itself to Jesus Christ. And you could contemplate a body that said, I don't need my head. I'm just going to wander about on my own. A ghastly and a hideous thing. And so let that be something that we each one of us take to heart. There is only one indispensable member of the church, and that is the Lord Jesus. If we have him as our head, if we acknowledge him as our Lord, and we, if we embrace him as our Savior, and if we are setting ourselves to the work that he has given us, then the things that we do in his service are the most important in the whole world. It's a striking thing, isn't it, that all these kingdoms that are described by Daniel, they are fearful Things, great empires that crushed their enemies through military might, the likes of which we also see today in our own day. People using oppressive political power and propaganda and the point of a gun to bring people under their sway. But here we have a kingdom that embraces its believers in a spiritual communion. One that as it says in verse 14, and there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. 
through the power of the gospel congregation, every nationality, whatever your background may be, whatever language you may speak, you have a place in this kingdom. A kingdom that acknowledges Jesus Christ as the sovereign Lord and yields itself from the heart to the things that he says are good and pleasing. It's a, it's a kingdom that entails not, not exercising power and authority over others and oppressing them as the, um, the nations of this world do, but it's a kingdom of humility, of love, and of true reverence for the living God. And because it never changes, because it never ends, because it will never pass away, this is the only kingdom that ultimately counts at the end of the day. This is where our allegiance must be. Yes, we belong to the nation in which we love, of Canada. We desire for the good of the community in which we live. We love our neighbors and our leaders and our fellow citizens. But our primary loyalty is to the one who has purchased us with his blood. And so we would willingly lay down our lives if ever his honor was at stake. So we see that in the second place, not only the position of Christ, but also his title. In the third place, let us consider his gifts, which are highlighted in question 51. What profit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly graces upon his members. So it's talking about his members. It's talking about the Christians, true believers in the Lord Jesus. Jesus has ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he is in that position of great honor and power, and he is there as the head of his church. And so he is able to give blessings and gifts unto his church, which are of infinite value. In particular, it is the gift of the Holy Spirit that is spoken of here. And you see that emphasis of the gift of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now these spiritual gifts that the Lord gives we considered recently at Pentecost of the Holy Spirit coming down upon his church bringing them the faith which they need because of ourselves our hearts are cold and dead we are unable to believe in the promises of Christ we are unable to yield ourselves to the yoke of Christ's kingdom but where his spirit comes down. We are brought from death unto life. We are able to trust our whole, our whole souls and lives upon our King and our Savior. 
We trust in him as the very source of our life, as the one who has atoned for our sin, and as the one who will preserve us in every circumstance of life. But it's not only in in our faith, but also in all the spiritual graces of the Christian life. I think especially of, of the holiness of the believer. Is there someone here who finds themselves in gri- gripped by a particular sin or temptation in your life. You find that there is something which the Lord has placed his finger upon and says, this is displeasing unto me. And if you are a true child of God, that grieves your heart. Now, the one who so has loved you with an everlasting love, that you should live in such a way that is, that is offensive unto him. That is something that must fill you with sorrow, even on some level, believer. Is it not the case that you know that that must be given up, that must be surrendered unto the Lord? You must let go of that which is displeasing unto him but you know as well that you cannot do anything apart from his grace in your soul. The good that you know you should do, you cannot do. You cry out, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you're reminded of that saying of the Lord Jesus himself, without me you can do nothing. You cannot exercise your will and your choice and your heart to deal with that sin, to turn from it apart from the Holy Spirit in your, in your soul. And so you need this mighty ascended Lord to pour forth refreshing rain from heaven, to give you a, a, a taste of his power and might, so that you're able to walk away from that sin as though it never had any claim upon you. You're able to say, this is what the Lord would call me to do. And through his might and grace in my life, I will yield myself to him as a living sacrifice. But it's not only uh, the gifts of his spirit that we see here. But we also have a special uh, gift as it concerns our defense and preservation. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members. And then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all our enemies. What a great comfort that is, congregation. We are living in a hostile time for true believers. It seems as though every moment of every day, every week, every month, there is more and more darkness which we must contend with, more and more temptations. And even in the professing church, must we not say that it often seems as though the love of many is waxing cold. Few people on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Few people who are truly um, occupied with him and his honor and his grace and his gospel. 
And it is a hard thing indeed to live in such times. We don't know what the future may hold. We don't know what levels of persecution or opposition may intensify. We don't know what kind of world our children and grandchildren will occupy. The temptation we may have is to simply huddle away and to say, well, whatever will happen to this world, we just have to look after ourselves. We have to occupy ourselves with our own safety, our own entertainment, our own pleasure. But that's not the way it is, congregation. The reality is that through Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. We, it says, in, according to the apostle, are seated with Christ in heavenly places where we are united to him by a living faith. He, as our head, bestows the very same glory and power and honor unto us. And he who, according to his great deity and Godhead, governs all things for our good, he will not suffer his church to be destroyed. Yes, indeed, we can say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That as much as we suffer and are afflicted and persecuted and opposed, the Lord will be glorified in that. And that will be the very means that the Lord uses to overthrow the kingdom of darkness. And when we see that we are able to commit everything that we do, everything that we uh, render to the Lord by way of service unto him, knowing that he will grant us the victory and that all the nations that oppose the Lord, they will be destroyed, even as we see in uh, in this prophecy of Daniel. It says there in verse 10, And a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, Thousands ministered unto him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. And concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. The reality is that the time of the devil and of his earthly kingdoms, it is short. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, it is the only kingdom that shall endure. And so we must take heart, congregation. There is nothing that can harm our king. He has seated on that throne because he has already accomplished the victory. We await his glorious return with expectation, knowing that when he receives us unto himself, we will also be welcomed into the presence of the 